You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. As I mentioned last week, if you heard and caught wind that we are starting today on a 40-week series through the Gospel of John. Now, before you get terrified, we're actually breaking that up into eight different series. And so we have eight series within the Gospel of John. And today we start a series called Encounters with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus will not leave you the same. You can't be the same when you come face to face with Christ. You can reject him. You can follow him. You can worship him. Um, You cannot stay the same. Today we look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Don't worry, we'll come back uh, to the beginning of chapter 1 in a few weeks. But uh, let's bring our attention to God's word as it's read. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man whose ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's word. We look at our first encounter. We see the encounter with John the Baptist with Jesus, the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And This is what we will see in this series as we dive into the actual events of the historical Jesus and his life and his ministry on earth. And as we begin, we're introduced to this character, John the Baptist. He was a man that we are told is appointed by God to prepare the way, to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of Christ. He called people to repentance. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn to God. And he baptized people. This John, it's not the same John as the author of the gospel according to John. This is a different John. Uh, He was born for this purpose, born for this purpose to teach us and to prepare people as well as he could for the coming of Christ. Now, we're going to meet a lot of people over the coming weeks in these encounters. We're going to meet a lot of characters. We're going to learn about their lives 
in this preaching series. And a good question to ask when we come to people like this in the Bible is, is always, what does this person teach us about Jesus? Because these character studies, these looking at these people, it, our point is not to get to know them so that we can be like them, but we should always ask, what does this person teach us about Christ? What are we to know about the one they are revealing? And we introduce John the Baptist to learn about Jesus. We're introduced to, to Nicodemus. We're introduced to the Pharisees and to the woman at the well. And all these people and all the people in the Bible are to teach us something about Jesus. Remember that as we go through this series. It's all going to be about Jesus. And here we are. We're introduced to this five-word confession that transformed, shaped, and, and really gave meaning to John the Baptist's life. This five-word confession, and that's where this passage focuses on, these five words, I am not the Christ. This five-word confession became to John the Baptist everything that his life stood on. I am not the Christ. We'll look at two ways, just two ways that John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus transformed his whole life and how he came to say that phrase, I am not the Christ, with such meaning and purpose and also joy. First, it transforms John's insecurities into confidence. And then we'll look at it, that it gives meaningful purpose to every detail of his life. And it could do the same for us. Let's look at this first one, that Jesus transforms our insecurities into confidence. Would you look at the scene with me? This is a narrative. We're in this portion of scripture where we're, a story is being told. And it paints a scene for us. John the Baptist is on the edge of the Jordan. He's baptizing people. He's preaching of the kingdom of God that is coming. And he's calling people to repentance. And he's baptizing them in the river. Baptism wasn't a new practice. It was a common practice even for the Jews, even before the ministry of Jesus. It was meant to signify the ceremonial washing of people's sin so that they can be presented as pure before God. And so it was, a, it was a form of washing, both physically and also symbolically, before God. And so John is drawing a crowd. I mean, people are coming. They're flocking to him. The crowds are coming out from Jerusalem. They're coming to the Jordan River, and they're being baptized. And he's creating for himself quite a reputation in the city. And so some of the Pharisees and the, the Levites and the temple workers and other religious officials, they, they go to do some recon work. Figure out who this guy is. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Go, go snoop around. And so they go. The, these, you can think of them as just kind of like the, the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the time working in the temple, and they're going. And they ask him, who are you? And notice he doesn't answer that question right away. Instead, he answers who he is not. He says, I confessed, and I did not deny, but I confessed he, so he emphatically makes clear, I want this point to get across very clearly, without any doubt, I am not the Christ. He's not Elijah, he's not a prophet that was, was promised. You think of this, there's three kinds of people that, that the Jews were looking for and waiting for that were promised to come. The Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come and and, and, bring, and, and fulfill all the promises of God, the, the anointed one of God that would lead God's people that would forgive their sins, that would establish a forever kingdom. This was the Messiah that was come, and it was promised. And he said, are you the one that was promised? And he says, no. 
Well, what about Elijah? You see, Elijah never died. He was actually taken up into heaven, and God promised that Elijah would return, and he says, I'm not him. And then he says, well, what about, are you the new prophet? Because God promised that there'd be a prophet better than Moses that would come. And he says, I'm none of these things. And the Jews were waiting for all of these people. And this leaves those, those scratching their head. Well, if you're not any of these people, then who are you? And what do you, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? And what do you say about yourself? Now, don't be confused. Those aren't the same question. Who are you and what do you say about yourself? They could ask, who are you, and then just stop there. But they go further. They say, what do you say about yourself? As if to say, who are you? Prove to us that you matter. Prove to us. Give us some reason. Make your case that your life matters, that your ministry matters, that what you are doing is significant that we should pay attention to. Where does the value of your life come from? Make your case. They're asking more than just details of name and address and credentials. They're asking about the core of his identity. Why do you matter? John and the Baptist has a lot going against him. There's a lot of reasons, uh, worldly speaking, that he, he doesn't matter. He was homeless, single, lived in the wilderness, he, we're given a physical description of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark. His clothes were made out of camel hair. Anybody here have any camel hair clothes? It's not something you want. It's dirty, it's smelly, it's itchy. He had a leather belt wrapped around his waist. That was it. And he had, he, his diet consisted of locusts for protein and honey, wild honey. So he probably had just like bee stings all over him. I don't know. He, he was just not much to look at. Homeless, single, unemployed. So naturally, we may be unattractive. We don't really know. He's, but he's likely not very physically impressive for a person that's just lived out, exposed to the elements his whole entire life. Vast number of people became so confused, right? He, who are you? Why should we pay attention to you? We're always trying to make sense of our lives. We're always trying to make a case for our worth, our value, or why we matter. We're always trying to root our identity in something or someone. And the vast number of people are confused as to where their value comes from because it's often based on what they accomplish and what they can accumulate. But listen to John's response in verse 23. He says, I am the one, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. What confidence when they ask him, what, why do you matter? And he quotes, quotes scripture. Of all the reasons he could go to, of all of his accomplishments and all of his achievements, he goes to God's word and says, this is why I matter. This is why you should listen to me. This is who I am and why I exist. What confidence. You see, Jesus was alive, but he didn't have his ministry yet. He didn't have a public ministry. He wasn't out there uh, doing ministry. God called John to go ahead of Jesus to prepare the way to warm up the crowd, so to speak. He was like the opening act to kind of get people ready for Jesus's mission. I, I think of John as like the opening act of like a comedy show or like a concert. You've seen that, right? Gates open at six, you know, the opening act comes on and then the main person, the headline doesn't come on until like 9 p.m., 
right? You're like, what? Like three hours of like opening act. But what's the person's purpose to do that? I mean, they come, they, they, they kind of warm up the crowd. They, they kind of get the people ready in their hearts and in their, in their energy for this headlining role. And that's what John is meant to do. He was born to live and to die for the very person, purpose of making Jesus' name great. That's why he existed. And John was so confident that this is why he existed, that he wasn't, he, he had so many reasons to be insecure, but he was confident. But his confidence wasn't self-confidence, it was Jesus' confidence. He wasn't confident because of what he had in himself or what he accomplished. He was confident because what God had said about him and what he was called to do. And this is such a difference. Self-confidence looks within ourselves to give us an answer to the question, what do you say about yourself? Why do you matter? But Jesus' confidence looks to Jesus to give the answer to the question, what do you say about yourself? Where does, where is your value come from? Why are you, why are you worthwhile? Why do you matter? It's so tempting to go through life with a goal of, of building up our, our self-confidence. It's even celebrated. It's rewarded in our culture to be self-confident. But here's the problem with self-confidence. I cannot be enamored with Jesus and with myself at the same time. That is to say that I cannot be caught up in my own glory, in my own reputation, in my own self-confidence, and live as one who finds their value, purpose, and worth in Jesus. John knew who he was. He knew that he was not the main headliner. He knew that... that all of life didn't center on him and he was content with that. Not only content, he was joyfully, confidently pursuing the call that God had put on his life to make the name of Jesus great. And this Jesus confidence sets us free from self-confidence. It also sets us free from this self-conscious insecurity. Always wondering about what people think about us. Always insecure, always looking over our shoulder to make sure no one is speaking ill of us. And he is able to give this five-word confession with such confidence, I am not the Christ. I'm not the answer to your struggle. I'm not the cure for your pain. I am not the one that could give you all the answers. But I can tell you who is. You see, when we see our, our lives and our circumstances within the reality of who Jesus says that we are, failure and criticism doesn't go to our hearts and successes and accomplishments doesn't go to our heads. We don't become puffed up with self-confident pride, nor do we become self-consciously insecure because we know who Jesus says that we are. We won't be puffed up with, with vain glory or dejected every time we don't meet someone's expectations. We are not called to fix the sin problems of our spouse or our children. We're not called to change the behaviors of others. We're not called to present to the world evidence of our own self-righteous glory. We're not meant to give an answer to the question, what do you make of yourself? Why do you matter? We are not meant to look within ourselves to give an answer to that. We're called to prepare a way in our hearts and in the world for Jesus to be revealed. 
How many of you are content not having your life made all about you? How many of you are content like John is to be content with that? I'm okay if I take the back seat to Jesus. How many of you are content to say that my life isn't about me, but about the glory of Christ? And I don't mean, can, can you tolerate your life not being about you? I guess I can, okay, I'll do that. No, I mean, can you be joyfully content that your life is not about you? Can you rejoice in the fact that your life is not about building your reputation in the eyes of others, but the reputation of Jesus? The mindset, the heart set of, of John the Baptist truly is the antidote to a world obsessed with self-promotion. It is an antidote to a world of self, obsessed with self-glory, with vain glory, with drawing attention to ourself. We see John the Baptist confident in who God says he is, confident in saying, that's not me, that's not me, I'm not that person, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the one you're looking for. My life exists to let you know about Jesus. Regardless of our age or our stage in life, there is tremendous pressure to build a personal resume that proves our value, that proves our importance, that proves our worth to the world, and even to ourselves, right? We have unwritten rules for ourselves of the kind of person that we believe that we should be. And we're haunted by that question, what do you make of yourself? Who do you say that you are? I'm sure that those who questioned John had these motives as well. The Pharisees and, and the Levites and the, the priests were from Jerusalem. They were coming from the temple. And these are workers in the temple of God. And, and, and here's the problem. If, if, if the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet came, they're the first ones to lose their job. Listen, when Jesus returns, I'm the first one unemployed, okay? And I'm okay with that. Uh, no more need for me, guys. Like, I, no more need the, the pastors, the missionaries, the, the, the church workers, the, the gospel preachers. We're done. It, it, we, will, we will know fully as we are fully known. We will, we will know it. And they're terrified of that. Well, who's the person that's going to come and take our job? Because my life is about me. And we need to know where you're coming from. We need to know who you are. We need to know if you're threatening our glory. And they're terrified by that. And John the Baptist is living, he's living this reality on earth when he says there's one who is coming whose straps of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. You see, in this society, in this first century society, a student of a rabbi or a teacher was expected to do everything that a, serve, a slave had to do other than, with the exception of one thing, and that was to untie and to wash the feet of their master. That was reserved for the slave. And now you know why in John 13 it was so absurd when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. But here we see that John is saying, listen, I know who I am, and I have this confidence that has come from God, but, but there is nothing, like, there is, there is no low that is too low for me. Because all of my life, there is no glory that I will take for myself, not even this most lowest of abasement. I'm not even going to promote myself above the task of taking off his shoes. You and I 
are not the headlining act in our lives. Jesus doesn't exist or come to this world to open up for us. He doesn't give his life for us so that our glory would be manifest in the world. We are not the headlining act in our lives. Another pitfall here is to be filled with with self-loathing. So I think there needs to be a balance here because I can talk about like our life doesn't exist for our own glory, but it also doesn't exist for our own self-hatred. And this is, this is another extreme that people can go to as well. So what am I supposed to do? Should I hate myself? Should I, should I really like loathe myself and not seek happiness, right? It's, it's self-loathing sounds like, you know, I am nothing, I'm worthless, I'm a nobody, only Jesus matters and, and I deserve nothing at all. Well, Jesus not only shows us that we can avoid self-confidence, but we can also avoid self-hatred as well. And it's at this point that the gospel comes to our rescue to remind us of, uh, that our being is not based on our doing, but it's based on Jesus' doing. In fact, it's our being, what Jesus says that we are, our identity in Christ that now influences everything that we do as God's grace changes us from the inside out, changes our motives, changes our passions, changes our desire, changes the reason why we obey and follow him and pursue after him. No longer is life now a, a, or discipleship an act of like drudgery. No longer do I do what I want, what I need to do to project like a, a performance, um, you know, persona to the world. It's not to protect my own reputation, but now in view of God's grace, I'm empowered to live a life of true joy that magnifies his reputation and glory in my life. By claiming these five words, for John the Baptist to say, I am not the Christ, by claiming those words, he confesses that he is not the answer to a broken world. And neither are we. You are not the solution to a broken world. You're not the solution to your own sins or the sins of those who care about. You're not the solution. And that should be a, a, a burden lifter. That should, that, should make, that should be a breath of fresh air. And there will be so many times when the world and others will want to put that mantle of responsibility on you. No, you need to be my Jesus. You need to be the Christ. You need to be the one that I've been looking for to rescue me, save me, to give me my self-worth. And we ought to say, I am not the Christ. That is not me. You're looking for somebody else, but here is who he is. He loves you. He has called you. He's created you. He's given his life for you. And so an encounter with Jesus will transform our insecurities and our self-conscious insecurities and our self-confident pride into Christ's confidence. And also it'll do another thing. It'll, it'll, it, Jesus gives meaningful purpose to every detail of our lives. Not does it only rescue us from insecurity, but it, it, it fuels how we then live our lives. Giving meaning to our everyday struggle our everyday joys, our successes, the things that, that go well and also the things that go poorly. So in the first half of the passage, we see this encounter that John the Baptist has with his critics. And he explains that his value and his identity is not anchored in who he is, in what he accomplishes, but it's anchored in who God says he is. 
So his identity is rooted in God and God's call in his life. And then in the rest of the passage, he goes on to explain that all of life can be understood and he's able to understand his whole life that has meaningful purpose when it's viewed in light of the gospel of Jesus, when it's viewed in light of the salvation of Christ. So in these two parts, he says, this is who I am because of Jesus. And then this is why everything that happens from here on out is important. And really what John does is he's highlighting three incommunicable attributes of God and his nature that mean everything to us. Incommunicable, that means this is the way that God is that we are not like. So he communicates some of his attributes to us, like mercy, you and I could be merciful. He communicates knowledge and kindness and self-control. But there's three things he doesn't communicate to us. Omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is all-present. He is everywhere, he is all of these. John, John highlights the primary ways that you and I are not like God, and this is where our confidence is anchored in. It is anchored in God and who he is. He is all-powerful and then can, therefore can satisfy all of our needs. You and I are not all-powerful. I can't satisfy all your needs. You can't satisfy all mine. Why? Because you don't have power over circumstances and you don't have control over life and neither do I but God does he is infinite and eternal and has no beginning and no end he is the creator of all of life he ordains and sustains and governs all of life and nothing is outside of the scope of God's sovereignty and control you and I are not like that things happen that we cannot control I can't be all places and all things. You cannot be all places. You try to with like a, you know, a Nest camera and things like that. You try to like see everything and be everywhere, but you can't. Omniscience. God is all knowing and therefore God is not limited by a lack of knowledge because he knows all things. He knows tomorrow because he ordained it. He knows how things will work out for our good, for the good of those who love him because he ordained it and he sustains it. He knows all things. You and I don't know the future. And John says, behold, here comes one who can satisfy all of your needs. Here is the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. Here is the one that satisfies us in our complete being, in our entire person, that, 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 that satisfies our deepest longings and, our, and conquers our greatest fears. He says he is higher in rank and position because he is before me. He still hasn't met him. I mean, he still, Jesus, his, his ministry hasn't started. What is he saying? He's saying, here's the creator of all of life. Here he comes. Yeah, he's better than me. How do you know? Well, because he's eternal and was here before I got here. Was there anybody here before he got here? No, nobody. He's the creator of all of life. And he says, I don't know what's happening tomorrow. I don't fully know how my pain fits into his grand plan, right? He, he's lived a homeless, single poor life, his entire life. And he says, I don't know how all of this is going to fit into the glory of God because I don't know all things, but I don't need to know because he knows it's his plan to, re it's his plan to reveal those things in time when it's best. And I trust him. You realize that we often view our, our weaknesses and our limitations and our failures as a loss of meaningful purpose in our life when God often means the opposite. 
When things go hard, when we are limited in our ability to know things, do things, accomplish things, we see it as a loss of meaningful purpose. God sees these as a doorway to express his meaningful purpose in our lives. When we realize that we are not omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, those are good things. It is meant to direct our attention to the one who is, who can be all things and do all things and know all things and guide us in all truth. There is, this is where the gospel means everything. This is where the gospel meets us. The cross reminds us that Jesus lived in our place to accomplish the things that you and I could not accomplish. He achieved the actual record of per- perfect righteousness, replacing the rags of unrighteousness on all of our filthy deeds and thoughts and actions and self- acts of self-righteousness. He replaced all of that with his perfect life and sacrificial death. He died in our place. He satisfied all the full demands of justice that sin deserved. And so John says, I'm just using water, guys. The one who's coming will will pour out his Holy Spirit in your life. He will be the one that will change you from the inside out. He will be the one that will give you a new nature, a new identity, a new motivation and desires. He'll, he'll be the one that will, that will sanctify you and change you from the inside out. I'm just using symbols here. Don't fall for the allure of the symbol when you have the real deal in Christ. Don't don't fall for the appearance of greatness and identity in your accomplishments and in in, in in the things you accumulate when the real deal is presented to us, a real relationship with Jesus. When we consciously, consciously embrace the grace of God by faith, the Spirit grafts us into Christ like a branch connected to a vine. And John says, this is what's happening. The one who's coming after me, he's going to do that. I can tell you about him and point to him, but there's one who's coming that will wash you with the Holy Spirit, that will forgive your sins, and that will graft you in like a branch to the vine, and you'll be connected to him forever. And it doesn't happen by making promises or trying harder to be better. It doesn't come from niceness or theological intelligence and degrees. It comes from consciously replacing trust in self with trust in the work of Jesus for you. And that is the only way that it happens. By by taking our self off of that throne of our life and putting Jesus there. And saying, confessing like John the Baptist, I am not the Christ, not, not me, but him. My life is not about me, but him. My successes are not about me, but about him. My failures are not about me, but it's about him. When we do that, we begin to understand our lives, understanding our lives not from a standpoint of strength and weakness or success and failure or happiness or unhappiness, but in terms of the reality that Jesus has defeated every sin and therefore we can cast every burden on him. Can you see your life from that vantage point? What would it look like to see your life and everything that happens in it within the scope of God's salvation history? That's how John saw it. I'm here in this moment and it has some significance to the plan of salvation that God has promised. You are here in this moment and it has some meaningful purpose for what God desires to accomplish in you 
for his glory, for your joy. I don't know what it is. You may not know what it is, but we know that we're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. We're not like God, but he tells us who he is. And we can cast our cares on him. You and I wake up every single morning with a fresh dose of evidence that our hearts in this world is broken. Yes? Yeah. Every morning, fresh dose. What is a disaster today? What broke that I need to know about and be angry about? Well, they'll tell us plenty. It never stops. We can be caught up in the, the global reality of a broken world that is far too enormous to understand or to control. Can you confess those five words, I am not the Christ, and cast your cares on the one who is? See, we can be caught up in all of that and into a, a frenzy of paralyzing angst, or we can live in the assurance that God's omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience, the author of life, the author of your life, who created you and knows you and your future, welcomes you into a meaningful, purposeful, loving relationship with his son. Not him, or not me, but him. Not me, but him. You wake up every morning and you get a dose of reality of the pain of this world. And can you confess, not me, but him? Confess that in your home, in your workplace, in your friendships, not me, but him. That's John's confession. Can it be your confession? Can you make that conscious effort to make that confession each day and multiple times throughout the day? Not me, but him. And John invites us. He invites all of his critics Instead of cowering to their intimidation, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who will satisfy the desires of your heart. Look to him and not me. You see, there's a lot of words in the Bible that translators have tried to modernize, and then there's some words that, that cannot be translated appropriately, and one of them is the word behold. It's the word, we don't talk about that you know, in, in today's terms. Behold, we have fresh coffee in the welcome area. Enjoy some later. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean just like, hey, look over there. It means embrace. Take hold of. With your whole being. Experience with true knowledge and affection. The real solution to your problems. Jesus, who died for you. You see, encountering Jesus is not about knowing true things about who he is and what he came to do. Encountering Jesus is about experiencing in the deepest part of your being a real relationship with God that comes not through your accomplishments or your record or character, but because of, through the righteousness of Jesus. We only have room in our hands to hold on to ourselves or to Christ. We, there's not room enough for both. And in order to take hold and to embrace and to behold Christ, we must let go of our agenda for our own glory. And it's an invitation to either center your life on yourself and your problems, and your weaknesses, and your successes, and your wishes, or it's an invitation to center your life on Christ. 
But it's only then that we find the actual true meaning of life. It's only then that we actually find true joy. For those who seek their life will lose it, but those who give up their life for his sake will find it. Not me, but him.